Oh, Father, that, that is our prayer. That, just, that piece of music just drew it out of our souls, this confession. That more than anything else in the world, we want to live in your house forever and ever. So lead us by the still waters. Rest our souls in the journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is one human activity that over all others turns out to be the most contagious. I suppose this particular human activity is endemic to this generation in the third millennium. This particular human behavior, this particular human response is so contagious that research shows that 55% of us, if we see someone engage in this behavior, 55% of us within the next five minutes will imitate that behavior. It's that contagious. Well, that explains why we're all doing it. This generation. I'll put a picture of this activity on the screen for you so that you can understand what it is we're talking about. <laughs> Isn't that a precious picture? I'm talking about the human yawn. It isn't, it isn't limited to a certain age group. It is the total uh, human journey experience. In fact, they've done studies and have found that 11-week-old fetuses yawn in mama's tummy. It is not only limited to the human race, it is also an experience enjoyed by the great out-of-doors. <laughs> what is there about a yawn? I went, on, uh, I went online, just thinking about our theme for today, I went online to find out what is it that causes a yawn? Is there, is there a scientific answer to this? And guess what, ladies and gentlemen, nobody knows. Scientists cannot tell us what creates the human yawn. We know that you suck in all the air in the universe when you yawn, that your heart rate goes up by 30%. We know that one hour before you sleep, you yawn the most, and one hour after you awaken, you also uh, have your most frequent yawns, but they still do not know what it is. Obviously, it is multicultural. One more picture from Google. Multicultural. You yawn all over the world. So let's assume, let's just assume for the sake of illustration that in fact a yawn represents a deep hunger and need for rest. If that's the case, and we're one of the most yawning generations ever, if that's the case, then there has to be a whole lot of good news in the passage of Scripture that the Spirit directs us to today. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Luke. Luke chapter 11. Here is this moving invitation of Christ read to us. What was it? It was read to us first in Korean. Then it was read in Spanish. Then it was read in Russian. Then it was read in Swahili. And then in English. Read to us just a moment ago. Matthew chapter 11, the Gospel of St. Matthew chapter 11, New King James. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible right in front of you. Let me give you a page number for this. That would be page 656. Red letters, the words of Christ. 
Maybe we are the generation. Jesus spoke this foremost. All right, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me. Oh, we know this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Hey, 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 he says, hey, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. I tell you what, if you forget everything else that was experienced this morning in this hour of worship, but retain that single line, you will not go wrong. Come to me and I will give you rest. In fact, take your new study guide out right now and let's write it down. Before we forget it, scribble it down in your study guide. If you didn't get a bulletin when you came in, hold your hands up. We've got the most efficient and friendly ushers in North America. They're here. Just hold your hand up. Move all the way to the back up in the balcony. I trust the choir. You've got your study guides. Those of you watching on television right now, we're delighted to have you. This is a fascinating study. Go to our website. Let me give it to you. It's www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website for the Pioneer Memorial Church. Go to our website. And you're looking for a brand new series. We just began this um, Last week, it's God's party, a little five-parter to wrap up this season. God's party. Let's see, last week it was, uh, what was last week? Last week was MySpace. Last week was MySpace. Next week, don't miss next week, YouTube, YouTube, YouTube. that'll be next week. And then number four will be Green Google. And then number five, good way to end it, Yahoo. All right? So we'll have all five of those. Today, however, is Facebook. You know, I'm going to say this because uh, we didn't take this informal survey last week. I asked, so I asked the, the uh, students who were here last week, and by the way, those of you who are uh, Dr. Paulson's age, um, you may not know, he does, but you may not know about social networks. It's the hottest thing in the universe today. It's where you go to meet people. It's where you, where you establish your contacts. And so last week we were talking about MySpace. It's the number one 200,000 people, 200, 200 million people globally meet in MySpace. Number two is Facebook. Number three is my yearbook. Number four is Bebo. And uh, uh, Pastor Wicklander, Bebo is the number one uh, social network site in the UK. All right? So... We're taking each of those, and uh, not each of those, two of those, and focusing on these social networks. I need to just tell you this before we fill in the study guide. I had a, a professor of Andrews University come to me last week. He says, Dwight. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this. So I had, to, I had students raise their hand last week. Which one are you in? And several of you raised your hands all the way, uh, or two or three of them. Karen was sitting behind a girl, uh, a girl and her boyfriend. And that young woman raised her hand for all four of the top four social networks. So you guys are, you guys are everywhere in cyberspace. So here comes this uh, professor to me last week and he says, Hey Dwight, my son is on Facebook. My son is now a med student out at Loma Linda University, but the kid grew up here in this community. He says, Guess Dwight, guess how many friends my son has in his Facebook account. Now let me just tell you about Facebook. I'm learning this. You have to have, you have to list your friends in Facebook in order for them to get into your, is that true? You, in order for them to get into your, your kind of, your, your private spot. So he said, guess how many? So I said, well, I'm thinking, well, maybe 10, uh, 20, no. I said, okay, 40, no. I said, 70, no. His son has 685 best friends. <laughs> Can you imagine that? 685 of his closest friends get together every week. 
I tell you what, guys, if you're not in this generation, 25 and younger, it's a whole new world of networking out there. So we're talking about Facebook today. You say, what does Facebook have to do with what we just read? You're going to find out. But let's, take, let's, let's jot that line down, please. Opening line in your study guide, Jesus' words, Matthew 11:28. Come to me and I will give you rest. Write it down, please. I'll give you rest. Matthew's original language of the Greek gives us a fascinating insight into what Jesus is really offering here. Keep your pen moving. The Greek word for rest is anapauo. It's composed of two parts. Ana means again, and pauo means to stop or cease. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, stop again and again and again. Just keep stopping. You need that kind of rest. It's the kind of rest, ladies and gentlemen, you get when you climb a mountain. Anybody here ever climb a mountain? Ever climb a mountain? I climb Mount Fuji. When, when I was a kid and growing up in Japan. All right. You know, you know that nobody chugs to the top without stopping. In fact, let me just tell you this. They released a, a documentary just this last week. That The name of the documentary is Blind Sight. It's about the uh, blind climber, Eric Why? Weihenmeyer. I said he was a German in first church. And somebody came up to me and said, I read the book. He's an American. All right. But he's got a strange name. All right. Eric Weinenmeyer, the first blind climber to scale the 29,000-foot summit of Mount Everest back in 2001. That's not what this uh, documentary is about. Instead, it's about him with six Tibetan youth blind climbers. Seven of them are blind. And they're climbing the 23,000-foot peak of Lakhpari, just north of Everest. And here is Eric with one of the blind Tibetan climbers. Anybody who's climbed a mountain knows you've got to stop. You can't just hustle to the top. You've got to stop and rest. You have to have rest stops. You've got to stop and rest, stop and rest. That, ladies and gentlemen, is precisely what Jesus is saying here. He says you're going to need rest stops. In fact, write it down, will you? Here's, in, in essence, he's saying in your ascent through life, you've got to stop and rest or you'll never make it to the top. So come to me and let me be your rest stop again and again. You just come to me. Now, it's true that the... The rest of the gospel is a permanent sort of rest, but Matthew is intentionally using language, language to shift from an idea of permanence to an idea of being periodic. Which is why, by the way, when Matthew lays down this most beloved of all of Jesus' invitations, I'm sure, when he lays it down, it is smack dab beside a narrative that he has intentionally put right up against it. Watch this. Pick it up in verse 28 again. Come to me, Jesus speaking. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Matthew is writing his gospel, ladies and gentlemen, there are no chapter divisions, there are no verses. He just keeps, he keeps chugging through to the end. So he intends you to go immediately after that offer of rest to the next story. Here it is, chapter 12, verse 1. And at that time... Jesus went through the grain fields on what day of the week? He went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. You know, that's what I love about the Sabbath. If you're hungry, it's the right day. Do we eat well on the Sabbath or what? Huh? Yeah. So they're hungry. Now, Levitical law gave permission for the poor and the followers of Jesus, along with the master himself, certainly qualify for that uh, distinction. The followers of the poor were allowed, if you're going through a, to a vineyard, you can pluck. Going through a grain field, you, can, you can't bring your, you know, your big gunny sack, but you can pull a few heads off. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're shucking them right there, like peanuts, just, just throwing them in their mouths. 
But their, their behavior was observed in verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, Hey, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, there's nowhere in the sacred scripture that that activity is, is forbidden. But we remember that over the centuries, a, 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 an oral tradition rose up and eventually it became written. And in that oral tradition, there were some strict guidelines for Sabbath behavior. This apparently violates one of those guidelines. And so Jesus responds. He said, hey, verse 3, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, how he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He said, hey, guys, chill out. Don't you understand? That there are times when need supersedes creed. We got the creed, but there are times when need supersedes the creed. He says, oh, by the way, let me tell you something else. This would be uh, verse 5. Or have you not read in the law, the Torah, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. They break the Sabbath. But need supersedes creed, Jesus is saying. And oh, by the way, yet I say to you, verse 6, that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, and now Matthew quotes his favorite text from the Old Testament to keep quoting, Hosea 6.6. 6. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. They, my, my disciples are not guilty. You, you know why I can say that? Jesus says, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Ladies and gentlemen, write that down, will you please? You have it right there. A short Sabbath narrative, bookended on one side by Jesus' invitation to find rest in Him, and bookended on the other side by His declaration that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. There's no question. Matthew is intentionally laying down this most beautiful invitation to Christ. Hey, 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 come to me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. He is intentionally putting it side by side, juxtaposed with a story that ends with a punchline. And by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Evidence enough, at least for this heart, that this most profound and heart-stirring of gospel invitations is most fully experienced, most fully experienced in the gift of God's Seventh-day Sabbath. When we rest on the Sabbath, that's the highest expression and experience of this rest. So you can write it down now. Yep, you're right. While the case can be made for the gospel's permanent rest in Christ, the actual language Matthew uses also describes the Sabbath's periodic resting in Jesus. So, how does Jesus' Sabbath promise address our deepest fatigue? All right, before you leave here, let me run these by you real quick. Four areas of deep fatigue in our lives on this campus and, in, and on this planet today. Four of our greatest fatigues. Here they are. Number one, write it down. Jesus' Sabbath promise relates to this. For our physical fatigue, it restores our pace. Our pace. Did you catch this uh, just a, a, a month ago? Our nation released two sleep studies of Americans. Two of them. And it came out just days apart. This, this is amazing. The first study, the National Sleep Foundation... They made this statement. In fact, you, you can jot this down. Nearly 50 million Americans, speaking about yawning, we're a generation of yawning, 50 million Americans chronically suffer from sleep problems and disorders that affect their careers, their personal relationships, and safety on the roads. So they're figuring that we're getting an average of six hours and 40 minutes. Six hours and 40 minutes a night. Wouldn't that be nice? 
And then a second study came out from the University of Maryland. And they're saying, hey, wait a minute. No, no, no. Let's take the U.S. Census Bureau data where it's kind of like a diary. Here's what I did today. And these are the very minutes I did it. They examine that. And it shows that we're getting 8.5. They're saying we are a well-rested nation. We're getting 8.5 hours of sleep a night. And I'm thinking to myself, which nation are they living in? I mean, I know where my body fits. Don't you know where your body fits? Which one of those studies? Ladies and gentlemen, we are not getting sleep. And by the way, this is not an elderly problem. This is for the kids now. Listen to this. The, the March issue of the journal of Adolescent Health reported insomnia in adolescence is as prevalent as substance abuse, depression, and ADHD. Now, jot this down. One quarter. Okay, so adolescence, by the way, is 19 and younger. 19 and younger. One quarter of the participants reported having one or more symptoms of insomnia, such as trouble falling asleep, staying asleep every night. Now, the journal goes on. Those with chronic insomnia were five times more likely to think their mental health was poor, three times as likely to have health problems and trouble at school, and twice as likely to use alcohol and drugs like marijuana and cocaine, end quote. And so Newsweek magazine, which is reporting this study, reports another study, jot this down, the use of prescription sleep medication for children under the age of 19 has spiked 45% from 2001 to 2006. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a sleep problem. You're saying, oh, come on, Dwight. That's children. That's not us college kids. That's not us adults. We don't have quite the same. Do you know what? Do you know? Let me ask you this. Do you know how many... University students at Andrews University are regularly up at one or two in the morning every single night. Do you know? I don't know either, but I'm telling you what. I eat once in a while over there in the cafeteria. I eat every week. If I can operate on anecdotal evidence. I was having the guys help me with this PowerPoint. So I said, guys, you tell me the truth. Are the dorms up at night? The guy says, you can hear the television going down the halls. You can hear the stereo. My sweet mate and... No wonder when we come to the seventh day of the week, we just crash and burn. Please. Huh? We did it the hard way. We earned it. The right to sleep. Uh, you know what? Some are going to take exception to this, but I'm going to risk their umbrage by telling you that I believe sleep. Let's put it on the screen, please. Sleep is a part of God's Sabbath gift. Don't you let the old timers talk you out of that. All right? Sleep is a part of the Sabbath gift. Look at this. What is this? Psalm 127, verse 2. He gives His beloved. God gives His beloved sleep. Hallelujah. It is not a sin to sleep on the Sabbath. I believe the Sabbath was given for sleep. Not primarily, but for sleep as well. No, seriously. I'm, I'm, I'm making a point here. In our crazy third millennial survival, let us sleep on this day. Don't stay up all Friday night too. Sleep on this day. It was given to us for sleep. Now, I'm not suggesting that we so burn the candle at both ends for six days and nights that when we come to the Sabbath, we collapse. That won't work. I'm going to give you something proactive next Sabbath. You too, you too. But right now, let's, let's, let's say it's not a sin to sleep. I don't care what you've been told. It's not a sin to sleep. 
on the Sabbath. Come to me, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. That's a promise for our physical fatigue. That is also a promise, write it down, for our emotional fatigue. Jesus' Sabbath promise for our emotional fatigue refreshes our hearts. Rebecca Brillhart wrote a beautiful piece in the Adventist Review in January. And I see my friend Bill Knott, who is uh, editor of the Adventist Review here. And it was a great issue, uh, Bill, back in uh, January. She wrote a piece, a beautiful piece, entitled The Jade Belt Bridge. In this piece, she quotes the comment of a woman to a friend of hers. Now, here's what the woman said. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Just listen to this. So this woman says to Rebecca, uh, to Rebecca's friend, Now I understand that if I don't allow for this rhythm of rest in my busy life, illness becomes my Sabbath. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, young adults and not so young adults, we're going to get rest. Our bodies will get rest. You either give your body rest or it will take rest. It will put you down to get the rest it needs. It will put you down. Yep. In fact, uh, Rebecca points out that the Chinese character for too busy. Watch this. This is, this is incredible. The Chinese character for too busy is composed of two parts. Heart and kill. Boy, isn't that something? When you are too busy. And are we too busy on this campus? Come on. When you are too busy, you are killing your heart. That's not just your physical heart. You're killing your emotional heart. You're killing yourself. I've been a pastor for a few years, and so I've had the privilege of observing human behavior. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, in this generation, we have so ratcheted up the speed with which we experience life that I'm convinced that because we are denying ourselves the 24-hour mandatory resting of God's Sabbath, we are paying a price far too high. We are over-medicating ourselves just to save ourselves from totally burning out. Come on, take a break. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Isn't that great? You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Any hope for us? Yep. Look at this. Two and a half weeks ago. This is South Bend Tribune. Can you see, can you see this um, headline? Get the camera on it there. Can you read that? Hmm? Yeah, now you can. Poll finds college campuses seas of stress. Did you have to do a poll to figure that one out? <laughs> Please. One in five this, one in four this, one in six this, one in three this, one in however many thinking maybe suicide is my best way out of all this stress. I mean the numbers, guys. These are, these are American campuses, all right? Seas of stress. Yo, Here's a university raised up by the Creator Himself to honor, to love Him and to honor that seventh day of the week where rest is woven into the very fabric of our university life. And that's all. Rest. Take a, take a break. Enjoy it. Live it. Come to Me, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. All right, there are four areas. Let me go to number three. It's also that Jesus' Sabbath promise is rest for our financial fatigue. And this is a huge one right now. Financial fatigue. What does it do? The Sabbath promise actually refines our wants. Write both of those down, please. A friend of mine who is an executive with a multinational insurance company informs me that financial institutions today are holding in unsecured debt. All right, this is unsecured debt. They are holding 45 trillion dollars. And when he sent me the email a couple of weeks ago after the Bear Stearns meltdown, he said, "Dwight, that's trillion with a T." 
Unsecured debt means I got a credit card, but if you come after me, there's nothing behind it. If you take my house, I got nothing. I got, it's unsecured. $45 trillion. Since this Bear Stearns meltdown, I'm telling you what, I've started a file and it's growing like this. I am amazed and I don't want to be a, a, um, an alarmist here, but I am amazed at the so-called experts from the economic and the financial world. Some of you in uh, finances. I'm amazed at the voices that are being raised now in warning, in warning to what is impending. So I, so I go online. Dallas Morning News. You heard of the, that famous newspaper out of the, that great city of Texas? Dallas Morning News, the Sunday paper this week, carries an editorial. I'm going to read it to you. No, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just a line. And so this appeared online. The economic crisis now breaking upon us will be both a political and cultural event. I'm grateful we have ch- world church leaders and church leaders, period, who keep their eyes on the horizon. Nothing is going to catch them by surprise. The economic crisis now breaking upon us will be both a political and cultural event that may well be a turning point in our nation's history, as consequential as the Great Depression, which, by the way, is a historical standard to which some smart people, like former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, are comparing this event. We're in it. Will it be as severe? Who knows? But here's the sentence that just jumped out of this editorial For me, the cultural roots of this crisis have to do with Americans' refusal to recognize natural limits. Isn't that it? Our refusal to recognize natural limits. Do you know what last year, Wall Street Journal three weeks ago told us? Last year, Americans, all right? That would be you and me. Only Americans, just last year, we spent $10 billion changing the ringtones on our cell phones. $10 billion. Most of that was Bada Young, because the old timers don't even know how to get the thing ring. <laughs> ten billion dollars. I just came back from the Horn of Africa a few weeks ago. Do you know what ten billion dollars would do over there, right now? Ten billion. What, what's this line? Americans' refusal to recognize natural limits. The cost of our grand national experiment in living beyond our means is now coming due. Yeah, I guess it is. Because it's home for it's it's a home foreclosures, and then it's mortgage institutions, and then it's banks, and then it's Wall Street, and then it's the United States, and then it's the world. You say, oh, Dwight, what's this? What's the big deal? I'm not into economics. I don't have anything to do with this. The Sabbath isn't going to heal that. No, the Sabbath will not heal our national woes today. But I'll tell you what, the Sabbath can heal those of us who are living a credit card-driven existence, getting a hold of every new trinket. And gadget that technology brings to America. We've bought the iPhone two times over. Paid for it the American way. Charged it on our student visa. Come on, guys. There is something about us that has gone to the well of materialism in this nation. We as Seventh-day Adventists are just as guilty as the rest. We are sucking it up out of this well, thinking we've got to have more and more and more when the appeal of Scripture is less and less and less. We're doing it backwards. I love this prayer. I mean, this would be a great Sabbath prayer. Look at this. Psalm, what is this? Psalm, you have it in your study guide. Psalm 73, 25. This friend, of, this friend of God cries out, and I love this, Whom have I in heaven but you? Dear God, I have nothing else but you. 
And there is none. Write that down. And there is none. Can we put it up, please, on the screen? And there is none. NIV says, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, that's what the Sabbath rest comes along to do. Jesus says, hey, listen, come to me. Hey, boy, come to me and I'm going to give you a rest from that insatiable thirst to have more. You don't have to have more. You can get by with less. American, you can get by with less. Western, Adventist, get by with less. Whom have I in heaven but you and the earth? On earth there is nothing I desire besides you. Less and less of my wants, more and more of my God. And finally, write it down, four great and deep fatigues. The fourth one, it's a spiritual fatigue. But the Sabbath promise comes along and it renews our friendship. Because you see, it takes their wants away and says, hey, I'm going to give you a new thing to want. Why don't you want my friendship? Why don't you just want my friendship? I'll slake your thirst. I'll satisfy your hunger. You want me. Oh, and I love this. Look at Eugene Peterson in the message. Isn't this good? It's there in your study guide. How does the message render Matthew 11:28 and following? Are you tired? Jesus asks. Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. Notice the friendship language. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, friendship language. And work with me, friendship language. Watch how I do it. Learn, and I love this, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Final line, write it down. Keep company. It's friendship language. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So as we're preparing to race out of this building to keep up with life, I need to ask you this question. So what would happen if we began to think of every new Sabbath as keeping company with Christ? Just keeping company with Him. Let's shift the paradigm. Instead of being like the Pharisees who are thinking of obligatory observances, why don't we just move that aside and let's focus on a refreshing relationship. Keeping company. Keeping company with the Savior. Come to me. Hey, hey, walk with me. Work with me. Rest with me. Come on. You and me. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, if we would shift the paradigm up here, you know what we would find about the Sabbath? Write it down. We would find out that the Sabbath is Jesus' Facebook. That's the truth about the Sabbath. It's Jesus' Facebook. Saying, this is where my face is. You want to find me as one of your top friends? Or he says, I wish I wouldn't be just one of your top. I wish you'd make me number one in your Facebook account. You don't, have, you don't know what Facebook is because you're too old to? I still wish I could be number one in your life. And every Sabbath, it's about you coming to see my face. Wouldn't that be something? A century ago, Ellen White was writing to an, an older woman who was on the brink of death. And in that letter, there is a beautiful little line. I put it in the study guide for you. I love this. She writes, Rest in Christ's arms... And know that He is your Savior and your very best friend. Know that He'll never leave you or forsake you. He has been your dependence for many years and your soul may rest in hope. Isn't that beautiful? He is our very best friend. So what if we made Sabbath the the day of our Facebook friend and the number one friend is the face of Jesus? You say, oh, come on, Dwight, there's no... I, I might be able to get started in that 24-hour period, but are you... listen, my mind, I multitask, I'd be out of there. I'd never keep my mind on it for the whole 24 hours. 
Yeah, you're probably right. I have a problem with that. Don't feel bad. I have that same problem. Trying to keep my mind that this is, this is my friendship day. So here's what I want to share in closing with you. I wish you'd write this down. Here's what I would like to suggest. And I'm going to ask you to take that little study guide and put it in your wallet and keep it. Here's what you do. In your Bible, circle verses 28, 29, and 30 of Matthew 11. All right? You circle those verses. Circle the numbers. Then, here's what you do. At the beginning of every Sabbath, from henceforth, wherever you are, if you're in your dorm room, if you're in your home, if you're in an apartment, you're in a trailer, you're in a hotel, somewhere on earth, every Friday night, when the Sabbath begins, you read... Just the first two verses, just the first two verses of these three that you've circled so that you would read, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hey, hey, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You just, you, you just read that. You just quietly read that. And then you pray this prayer. You can do a lot better than this prayer I wrote, but here's a suggestion in case you can't think of a prayer to pray. Here's your prayer to begin the Sabbath. Dear Jesus... I receive your Sabbath offer of rest. I receive it right now. I wish to keep special company with you for these 24 hours. Let me see your face today. Amen. Then you live the Sabbath. You just go ahead and live the Sabbath. But now you're looking for His face. You're looking for His face. You will be amazed at the places where suddenly you walk straight into the face of Christ. You may see it in the poor inner city kid that you're working with up in Benton Harbor. You'll see that face. Maybe in your beloved mother. You will see his face. You're looking for his face. And then you say, well, do I, what do I, just go all the way through the day looking for that seventh day, looking for the face of Jesus. And when you come to the end of the day, here's what you do. You then read verse 30. You can go ahead and read 28 and 29, but you want to concentrate on verse 30. And how's that go? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so then you pray this prayer. You say, all right, Jesus. Lord, I want to be yoked. I want to be partnered with you all through the new week. Please keep company with me until we we return together to your Facebook Sabbath. Amen. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Take that little piece of paper. Take that little piece of paper. You fold it. Listen. You just fold it a couple, three times. You stick it in your wallet. This will be worth more to you than a $10 bill in that same wallet. You just take this piece, put it in your purse. You don't have a wallet, put it in your purse. But when the Sabbath begins next time, you pull it out. You just say, okay, the Sabbath. What am I going to do? Just read the verses. Keep it with you. Hey, listen, isn't that the point of having a Facebook in the first place? I mean, what is, it, what, what, what is Facebook for? Facebook is a place to meet your friends and to focus on their faces. That's the Sabbath. To meet your capital F friend. And to focus on His face.